0: to take another 15% off of this course. And uh, we can't wait to see you there. Agile Coffee for Humans, episode 11. Processes and tools dominate today's Agile discussions, but we are devoted to the individuals and interactions that make it work. From the beginner to the veteran practitioner, we have something for you. Welcome
1: to Agile for Humans. Welcome back to another episode of the Agile Coffee for Humans podcast. It's a crossover.
0: Yeah, so Victor and I, this is Ryan Ripley, got together and decided, hey, we had so much fun talking before. Let's do a crossover of the two podcasts, place the episode in each feed so that uh, he can introduce his listeners to Agile for Humans and I can introduce our listeners over here to Agile Coffee. There's a lot of good crossover. There's a lot of uh, topics that, uh, that we both cover. It's a very... Human-centric podcast, what Victor and his crew has put together, and I think it's a great fit. And I hope you guys give it a shot. And after this, go out and listen to Victor's uh, archive and, and check out Agile Coffee and, and continue listening uh, right for on. all of their great topics and guests. So, Victor, thanks for having me and uh, for putting together this crossover. Really appreciate it.
1: Where do we contact you best, Ryan? I know you've got the website agileanswerman What's your uh, What's your Twitter handle?
0: Yeah, so I'm Ryan Ripley on Twitter. Uh, com or Ryan at RyanRipley.com is the email address.
1: Please feel free to reach out and uh, continue the conversation. And in addition to Ryan, we have another good friend of ours, John Jorgensen, on with us today. Hey, John, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing good. In fact, I think um, you, can, you could say I'm upgraded. <laughs> I'm <feeling> very <laughs> upgraded tonight.
0: John 2.0. John
1: 2.0. can 2.0. He was calling after me from the phone. I'm just going to call you 2.0 tonight then. (laughs) 2.0 can be reached on Twitter at Water So this is pretty exciting for me. um, We've always done these coffees face-to-face, so this is my first virtual lean coffee. I don't expect it to go off completely without a hitch, but I do expect to have a lot of fun. I see that all the cards that are assigned to John are now being assigned to 2.0. <laughs> very good. So Lean Coffee was started a few years back, and it's a very lightweight, agenda meeting format. It uh, started by Jim Benson, Jeremy, up in uh, the Seattle area. And they were just kind of tired of doing all the all the stuff that goes along with putting together a, a conference or even a meeting, uh, getting a speaker and, and having someone else uh you know, put together the agenda, all that. So they decided to, to make it very lightweight using lean principles and have the agenda emerge out of, out of what people want to talk about. So in most cases, we sit around a table and we use index cards, just three by five index cards, and everyone will write zero, one or more topics that they want to. And the reason that we use thick markers on an index card is because you can't fit a whole paragraph. On there, So it's just a few words. After everyone's contributed their topics, what we do is we just give a little bit of a context to each topic. And uh, I might say, for example, um, my first card today says organizational psychotherapist, the new coach, because I read a blog post, uh, Bob Marshall put out a blog post lately. And, you know, I wanted to talk about um, how the coaching is really going maybe more toward, in his opinion, toward just a therapist role so that's an example of how to put some context to a card and then what we do is after we each give context to our cards we do some dot voting in our case maybe three votes a piece then we stack rank them so whatever has the most dots goes on top whatever has the fewest goes on the bottom and hey isn't that nice because now you're not talking about all the stuff that no one wants to talk about you're talking about the important things first and then you set up a personal kanban board which is simply three columns left to right it's to do doing and done and then um Give ourselves a time box of, uh, in this case, six minutes or so. We'll pull the first card in and talk about it for six minutes and see um, see if there's staying power to that topic, if we want to continue on, or if we want to pull the next card in after that. That's it in a nutshell, a rather big nutshell. Sometimes I talk too long about Lean Coffee, but I can't tell you how excited I am to use it. And I always find new applications for it, too, whether it's in the workplace, uh, in the community at meetups, or in the case of our podcast. It's a great tool to have. Well, having said all that, I see I see seven topics out there. I'm just going to read them off. So again, I, I put the first topic up there of my own. It says organizational psychotherapist, the new coach. And I gave a little bit of a, a summary of it, but I was reading um, Bob Marshall. He goes by Flowchain Sensei on Twitter. Uh, he just wrote a short post called Why Me? And it goes into the topic of, hey, I call myself a coach or may call myself a consultant, but is that quite right? I think that maybe uh, I'm more of a therapist, and here's why. So I thought, hey, that's a pretty compelling topic. Let's talk about it. The next one I put up is called Agile Games, Simulations and Learning Activities. Agile Games for short. I put that up there because there's a handful of games and and other activities that I use when I do trainings. And I kind of wanted to share those with you guys, see if we're talking about the same games or if you have others that I forgot to add but uh, about five or six that I go to all the time. The next one, Ryan, is yours. It says, the business side of Agile, how we justify the investment in agility.
0: Yeah, so this is more around the better, faster, cheaper, false promise of Agile and how we should actually frame out to the business side of of the fence, if such a thing exists, which sometimes it does, but framing out to them what exactly they're investing in, what they're going to get and, and some, of the, some of the levers they have to pull in order to enhance or even be destructive towards that investment.
1: All right. Uh, we have a few from John, or 2.0, I should say. 2.0. <laughs> the HR side of Agile, performance reviews, raises, and transparency.
2: Yeah, so it's, um, it's long been a topic, I guess, since the days of Edward Deming, that individual written performance reviews on an annual or semi-annual basis are actually demoralizing and um, ineffective. And I believe that actually um, inside of the Agile movement, this is something that's becoming more broadly understood and accepted as um, Agile practice to avoid. And so I thought it might be interesting to talk a little bit about that and maybe um, gather some insider consensus on um, how our community is progressing in that respect.
1: Cool. How about um, the Agile transformation, the rest of the story?
2: Yeah, so there is an Agile transformation, I think, a change of mindsets and certain things that um, the software development team is expected to do. However an agile transformation across the enterprise, I think, involves an equal amount of change and effort on the part of management and executives in terms of removing structural impediments. And so I'd like to explore that a little
1: bit. 2.0 has two more topics. One is crossing the line, push and pulling hair.
2: Right. So I think what I'm seeing in agile coaching right now is that As an Agile coach, you're trying to encourage teams to adopt new principles, values, and practices, and there's a point where a coach can cross over the line and maybe uh, get substantial blowback, Um, and so there's kind of a dance in this coaching that I see where you, you push to a certain extent and then you pull back and mm-hmm. um, kind of let the team recover. And so um, this is a very delicate art as far as I can tell so far and interested in other people's experience with it.
1: I have Aerosmith's uh, "Living on the Edge song <laughs> as you're playing in my <laughs> head as you're doing <laughs> that. <laughs> uh, and finally, um, you have Ken's Complaint, trademarking Scrum Group.
2: Yeah, so about a week ago, uh, Ken Schwaber published an article on his blog related to how the Scrum Alliance is currently pursuing the trademarking or copywriting, I think it's trademarking, of the word Scrum and group, uh, particularly related to a dispute I think that they had with a Scrum Users Group in Orlando, Florida. some. Mm months or years ago, and it's generating quite a number of comments on his blog by well established dignitaries in the field, and it could be much ado about nothing, or it could be a very important turning point in the Agile community, so uh, it might be interesting to kind of get some people's viewpoints on this one.
1: Yep. We've got the seven seven topics up there. Let's give them let's give them four votes apiece. There's a lot tiered that I that I kind of want to hear. We're probably going to get to run through all of them anyway, but uh I just love to vote. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> so we'll take a minute and do that. Ta-da. So for those of you not familiar wow. with this format,
0: what uh Victor's doing right now is he's counting up the votes, taking the spreadsheet we're using the uh the Google Doc, ordering it in rank order that we have voted on the topics, and it looks like uh, the HR side of Agile has won out as our number one topic, I think he's going to start the clock and we're going to fire away. Do I
1: have it right, Vic? That's exactly it. So, John, you've got it. The floor is yours with the HR side of Agile, performance reviews, raises, and transparency.
2: Right. So um, I think Edward Deming was pretty clear in his statements about his reasons why people um don't benefit or organizations don't benefit by doing semi annual and annual performance reviews of individual workers and the two that come to mind are that when there is a delay between an action of of a worker and the review or evaluation and feedback of that action, it really doesn't contribute to that person's um, improvement in their behavior, and um, it also creates a culture of fear and um, lack of risk-taking and innovation, but even um, even worse still, uh, there's individuals doing the best that they can in a system that needs to be optimized um, rather than people being optimized. And so um, those are the reasons I think that he gave uh, for discouraging written semiannual or annual performance reviews. Um, in the last, I don't know, two or three years, I suppose, I've seen postings on LinkedIn and I'm sure that Harold Shinsako has posted in his blog a couple of uh, papers that have shown how actually companies expose themselves to legal liabilities rather than protect themselves um, by perpetuating this mispractice of uh, written performance reviews. But um, most recently, what I've noticed is that when um, you look at an organization's readiness to adopt Agile principles and values, that having team-based reward systems and team-based performance metricing, um, that that's an indicator of, of where a company is in their preparations for transformation, if you will. And, you know, I've been reading lately the books uh, written by Ken Schwaber, um, and he also makes indications that individual performance reviews are, are a counter indicator for readiness for Agile. So um, in my mind, it's very um, black and white, and I, even though... You know, this is like conventional wisdom in the in the Agile community. I have yet to see an organization that's actually um, adopted uh, team-based reviews and uh, reward systems other than just a, a small handful of examples like, I don't know, Holacracy and Zappos and, and others. So anyways, I was just kind of wondering in everybody else's minds, is this something you know the individual reviews is this something that people see as anachronistic and and if so like, why do we tolerate it so much because the years just keep rolling by that i see it you know further enshrined in organizational development and governance structures which is kind of disappointing is is it changing or what what will it take i wonder you know to to change this
1: here's the um Here's the grand experiment with uh, doing a lean coffee over Skype where we're not seeing each other. <laughs> no, well, well put. I've been, um, as as Ryan knows and John knows as well, I've been uh, between engagements for a little while now. So I've been doing um, a bunch of interviews and um, I've interviewed for a director position. It's still in progress. So uh, I'll keep it at that. But but I've had to not only address that question myself, but also kind of examine what what would it take for for me to kind of put my chips on the table and say, this is what I think needs to be done. I mean, this is the way that, you know, not to be kind of prescriptive about it, but, but I think that you're right, John, it should be very team-based. And that's what I'm saying uh, whenever I'm doing any kind of a, a formal or even an informal interview with people now, is how do you go about um, getting across the performance of the team? And I say that because I'm not... In my role, in my hopefully my role, I'm not handing out a performance, but I'm communicating. I'm working with the team members uh, and the individuals, in some cases, I would guess, but but working with the teams to say, okay, how is it that we are performing, and how can we make improvements together? I think that a lot of the individual performance um, conversations and or situations are probably handled within the team. At least that's my ideal, and that's what I'm mm-hmm. saying with the people that I'm interviewing. Um, and then any other kind of the th- typical 360-degree feedback is very much, you know, how can, how can the organization help you? How can you – what are you finding in the organization that you can help bring to us outside of our regular daily talks? Um, but really, it's it's how do we as a team give ourselves a performance, an honest and appropriate performance review?
0: So I think if, if, the right. goal, if the goal is to change behavior in an, org, in an org, you start with the facts, right? So when mm-hmm. I think of a performance review, and I actually am a director in a Fortune 500 company, I spend a lot of time on this every year. Um, and what I've always felt about uh, these performance reviews is that it's always an after-the-fact discussion. I'm talking to someone about mm-hmm. the previous year at a point in time where we can't do any corrective action. Mm-hmm. And so, I find that mm-hmm. to be lacking in value i'd rather support the person in the position and role that they're fulfilling at a point in time when they need it mm-hmm. right so yeah. i'd rather have the conversation at a point in time where I can provide coaching direction, you know whatever that person needs in that moment to position them for future success and so I think that's the initial that's the smell right that's the problem mm-hmm. uh, It's the after mm-hmm. the fact nature of a of a review. If you look at the statistics, uh, in the United States, 6% of the Fortune 500 have dropped uh, these annual review processes. Accenture being the most recent, uh, ultimately, mm-hmm. they decided the time and money spent was not getting the goal uh, that they were trying to drive, which is improve the performance of their employees, because again, it was an after-the-fact measurement that was doing a forced ranking and creating a way to distribute a bonus that they felt uh, really only, which basically the process only helped the narcissistic and the self-promoters. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the that's the mm-hmm. issue there. I'd also add, you know, companies like Deloitte, Microsoft, Adobe, Gap, uh, in the medical device world, Medtronic—they've all gone to a lightweight. Uh, performance assessment type system because of these observations. So the answer to the question of how do we make this more pervasive is give it time. The facts are are proving out companies are moving forward. 6% of the Fortune 500 is making the change. And the statistics and the numbers and the studies are coming in and showing You know, management can easily spend at least 200 hours a year on these type of efforts. In a firm of 10,000 employees, it could cost $35 million to that firm just to, just to do that activity. Hmm. As those numbers what a huge get, amount of waste. Absolutely. And so as those numbers become more public to to boards and as people really go dig into their processes and validate those numbers, I think you'll find companies very interested in leaning that out because that those are real dollars that management spending, when right. they could be doing strategy, when they could be doing future vision, when they could be doing coaching and other activities would actually that would actually bring value back to the firm,
2: yeah. You know, it's it's funny. Um, a couple, I don't know, months ago, I guess, I, I decided to start googling on this topic, and I realized that uh, a friend of mine who uh, from Japan, um, who had you know worked for Fortune five hundred companies such as IBM, um, had written an article in the Wall Street Journal about this. His name's Brad Hall, and I'm very confident that he knows nothing about the Agile. Movement per se, or Scrum, or anything like that, uh, project project management related. But um, as you say, Ryan, it, I, I think you can be uh, framework agnostic and still arrive at the irrefutable conclusion that these kinds of way after the fact um, reviews uh, are are worthless because it's no longer actionable and. Um, you know, looking at the size of the waste, I mean, my gosh, you could probably sustain the entire agile coaching industry on a very small fraction of, of the, the savings that you would get from eliminating this archaic practice. So uh, I, I think you're right. It, it maybe doesn't take evangelizing from a bunch of agilists to change this trend, but just the, the triumph of reason will eventually uh, bring it to pass.
0: Well, and if you tie it back to the Agile paradigm, right, you would basically look at it as running a retrospective at the end of a waterfall project. And what good would that do you?
2: Yeah, just like a retrospective in a sprint, you know, two weeks delay, or in the moment, the day of is the time, you know, strike the iron's hot.
1: Great. That was topic number one. What do you out there have to say about this topic or anything that we talk about? Use the hashtag on Twitter, tell agile Coffee, and become part of the conversation. Next up, we have a topic that's called the business of Agile. Ryan, this is yours. How we justify the investment in agility.
0: Yeah, so this is a very quick tee up, and I hope you guys have some experience with this. I'm sure you do. You know, In many circles, when you talk about why we're doing Agile, uh, sometimes it's in the reaction to an issue. Sometimes it's the re- a reaction to an observation. Sometimes it's, hey, Agile's the new shiny, and a consulting firm said we need to do this. In any case, when they're making justifications to the people who who control the, the financials of a company, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of better, faster, cheaper, and I don't necessarily agree with it. And instead, I'd rather tell the story more accurately where there is a heavy upfront investment there are things that will cost more but in the long run you can save through quality and other such measures and it's really just an open discussion or perhaps question around have you guys seen the better faster cheaper completely blow up in the faces of people who try are trying to do an agile transformation and what have you found to be successful when you're speaking to uh, the, the business decision-makers and those who are holding the financial reins when you're trying to convince them that, that Agile is a good investment?
2: Well, I honestly think um, it would be really good comedy if it weren't tragedy. But the, what I see happening is, like you say, when, when people don't know a lot about their own enterprise's problems and they don't know anything about Agile, Generally, what they launch on or latch on to is the faster part of better, faster, cheaper. And the, the most common um, misunderstanding or misguided approach is to say, uh, so faster means more and more means more. I like more. So we want higher velocities and the way that we get there is we stuff more things into work in progress and we get more. And, and what keeps coming back to, to them is that um, you get nothing when you max out at 100% utilization of your individuals or teams. And so the, the big um, discovery or epiphany is that by limiting WIP, lowering to a reasonable range of utilization, like 75 to 85%, All of a sudden, they do actually get more, and they get it at a sustainable pace, and they get it in a predictable cadence, and that's, I think, where the investment starts to pay off, but it's usually in spite of the approach and the objectives and actual pain that was besetting the enterprise, and so it's kind of like a windfall more than it is um, the wisdom of business leaders understanding themselves, understanding what agile can do for them, and then making a beeline for it. That's that's my experience so far.
1: Yeah, and and I often think uh, I often think it needs to be much more of a case of outside of the development group. Like at, a lot of times, my impression is that leaders in businesses, just think of Agile as something that's going to help the developers, as you said, John, get, get their stuff done faster. But they they really just only contain their thought, the sphere of thought to that side of the building, the developers, the, everything that goes along with developing and getting software out. But really, it has to be an investment in Agile up and down throughout the organization. And for me, it's that's the question that I grapple with, is how do you, short of just saying, you know, hey, this this is change and change isn't easy, but it's going to going to be a completely different mindset for your organization. How do you get them to swallow that pill?
0: Is it a, is it a well-understood problem? And in some of the areas, I, I don't think it is. You know, trying to no. Explain, no. explain to a company, yeah, we're going to put XP in and your developers are going to become proper... Uh, professional engineers in the software space. That's great. And I think XP is so fundamental to everything that we do that it, I, I don't think you should even try this without the the core XP practices within your dev teams. You know, I, it, it is just fundamental. But at the same time, the business has to provide uh, co-located product owners who are dedicated to teams. That's mm-hmm. expensive. Uh, from a DevOps perspective, continuous integration, continuous deployment uh, all these things are incredibly expensive. Most large companies aren't doing them. So you have that upfront investment. If teams are limiting WIP, you need more teams to get the same portfolio, quote-unquote, done a- as what was perceived in the past. That's expensive.
2: Uh, but, well, Brian, i, I I'll go ahead.
0: I was just going to say, but on the back end, we have a lot of value. We're not doing months and months of integration. Uh at the end of a project we're not doing months and months of of product change requests and an additional months of testing slash defect remediation slash fixes you know we're able to cut off there we're not doing the 50 percent of the project that brought no value and that the users were never going to use so we're basically we're cutting the tail off on the back end of a project but there is heavy upfront spending. And if we could actually wrap our heads around some of that and tell a compelling story, I think we can remove some of the disappointment that is perhaps coming with many agile transformations.
2: Yeah, I I was going to say, Ryan, I mean, as long as we're stacking the costs of an agile transformation, why don't we, we go where the numbers are crazy huge. And what I mean by that is taking an offshored Um, outsourced labor force and bringing it all back onshore, in-house, co-located. I mean, we're talking about, I don't know, what I hear uh, accountants say is that uh, three to one, in other words, the cost of an offshored uh, full time uh, person is about one-third as expensive as an onshore co-located developer. And so we're saying we want you to invest 300% of what you're currently doing. And I don't think that any company that could be described as fat, happy, and stupid um, (laughs) would be willing to make that leap of faith. I think that it takes a company that is literally down on its knees saying, help me, I'm dying, that is willing to take that kind of an extreme step. And so there's certain... I don't know, I guess you could say crossing of a chasm that is impossible when you casually approach um, making an Agile transformation. But having said those extreme things, I will also say that um, comparing a, a, a pre-transformation um, enterprise, or at least the software development um, part of it, to a post-transform uh, software development organization is like night and day, and so a 300% investment, I think, actually has a much more handsome ROI than what companies or enterprises are putting up with today. So I'm I'm thinking orders of magnitude more uh, profitability and, and return on investment than what enterprises are used to. So the 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 investment I think is warranted. But again, what what's preventing them is not the ROI. It's the lack of introspection, you know, on a on a numbers basis, on a profitability basis, of where they're at today, what they stand to lose in terms of competitive advantage by staying the same, and then what they have to gain by completely reinventing themselves.
1: Yeah, yeah. You had mentioned uh you know, competitive advantage, and I think that's huge. I wanted to see if, if anyone knows if there's any attempts being made at finding out what a payback period is. So we talked about ROI, but also what's the payback period of these upfront investments. Um, so if it only takes a year or so, it might be more um, more doable to to most of the C-suite execs. But if it takes something like two or three years on that order, then it's a harder sell, right?
0: I think it depends on the percent of return, but also another compelling factor mm-hmm. is going to be how fast does that return begin? And that could also be an interesting mm-hmm. way to present it. You know, in a, in a typical program, you know, let's say it takes 12 to, to 18 months to actually get revenue coming back in. On an agile transformation, month one or two, you can start seeing an uptick uh, depending on what kind of activities you're undertaking. And so that, I think the, the, the time to that initial a uh, return is important but then again that the percentage of return and over the number of years is also critical there's not a lot of work out there as far as i know in this space however i think this is an important topic and it's time that we do start speaking in business terms back to these organizations if we really want to see uh, true traction uh, increase
1: i agree 100. Yeah,
2: and speaking to the you know um... the payback period I the, the more that I work with organizations that have thousands of employees rather than hundreds or dozens, the more that I'm saying that that, that turnaround is much slower. So, rather than weeks or months, I really do think you're looking at years. Yeah. Um, even if we're talking about co-located, onshore, full-time, permanent employees, um, mindsets take a long time to change. Right. and you know, your your, your most your, your best case scenario, from what I've seen, is about eight months, six to eight months, for somebody who's a real gun ho, like a scrum master who used to be maybe like a BA or a um, or a project manager. If you take the more skeptical, like tech leads or um, other other types of team members. It can be a long, long time before they decide that they're going to change the way that they see the world. So, unfortunately, um, when you're talking about Fortune 1000s and Fortune 500s, um, I would say rather than overbuilding expectations, brace yourself for a two year turnaround.
1: Good. I mean, not good, but I think that brings us to the end of the topic. yeah. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, that one went a little bit long, but but yeah, I agree, underscoring what Ryan just said. It's about time that we had that conversation. Let's move on, though, to our next uh, next card. We have Ken's complaint. So why don't you lead us off there, 2.0? Yeah.
2: Sure. So in this blog, you know, Ken actually, Ken labor is pointing out that All the time that he was the president of Scrum Alliance, um, I I would suppose starting in 2004 and going for uh, a couple of years thereafter, um, with the exception of where he was hospitalized due to a bicycling accident, um, he had instructed the staff at Scrum Alliance and the the legal, legal staff to not pursue the trademarking of Scrum terms in hopes that having a completely unfettered um, access to it, you know, it's in like, uh, what do they call that? The commons. Creative um, commons. You know, usage. Hmm. Creative commons, right. But it's protected by creative commons. So you don't have to think twice about, you know, if I I say something wrong or use this without permission, is somebody going to come get me? Um, and then that would, that would proliferate it, you know, the more that people have freedom to use something, uh, then the more, uh, inclined they are to use it and tell their friends. And I think that that's really what's happened, is that you've seen Scrum kind of mushroom, uh, all over the place, but what's going on now, um, it seems, and and I say this because I don't think that anyone who represents the Scrum Alliance has really given the counterpoint to Ken's argument that they are seeking to restrict the usage of the word scrum and group and it's only his speculation or the speculation of other commenters on that thread that they want to bring a lawsuit against um... some scrum users group somewhere because they didn't ask permission to call themselves a scrum users group and I guess what where, where I'm most interested in this is if the if the organization, Scrum Alliance or or any other entity, actually does start trying to restrict the usage of its terms or overly commercializes their their knowledge or their terms and I don't know where that boundary is by the way, but over commercialization can lead to an actual abandonment of of the concepts and the terms. And uh, Ken wrote something that was fairly interesting there, which was actually, um, I hope that they do abandon, uh, you know, what we're, what we're calling Scrum today and go beyond it. Um, I, you know, not knowing as much about Ken Schwaber as, as I probably could, would have uh, not thought that he would say something like that. I consider him sort of a, one of the fathers of Scrum. Um, but... I think he has an Agile mindset of, you know, um, the sooner Agile dies, the sooner Scrum dies, the sooner we can move on to whatever lies beyond it. Hmm. And um, I I think, I'm not saying that we're there yet. I I think that there is value in the ideas, and the the rest of the world is still barely catching up with us in Scrum and other popular forms of Agile, but um, if if there really is a movement inside the organizers of Scrum Alliance to try to be very restrictive and police the use of the word Scrum, um, I think that they will see a very sharp turn in the way that um, people reflect that brand of it. And particularly Tobias Tobias Mayer, by the way, chimed in on this thread, so you can imagine how inflammatory it got, um, was, you know, pointing out things like, you know, the renewal fees for some of Scum Alliance's um, certifications and whether that's excessive commercialization or not. And I think that, the, that this topic um, is a watershed moment because, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of opinions that are forming pretty strongly, um, and there's a counter-movement, I would call it, uh, yeah, uh, like Mike Cohn's uh, recent uh, Front Row Agile um, offering called Letting Go of Knowing, where uh, people are saying, you know what, um, there's been enough of the religious wars over different frameworks, and if, we're, if we truly drink the Kool-Aid that we sell to others, around being introspective and empirically based. When we go to different conferences throughout the world where Agile and its many flavors and brands is being presented, strongly consider going to a session that is something that you are least inclined to go learn more about in the interest of broadening your own perspective. So um, I think Scrum Alliance has a lot to lose by going the wrong way with this. I don't know if it's as iconic as it's making itself out to be, but um, only time will tell. And, I don't know, um, how would it strike uh, either of you if, um, you know, the patent office uh, were actually to award the control of the word Strom and group to the Strum Alliance? Would that be small potatoes, or would that be something that kind of um, feels a little bit... um, I don't know, commercialistic or over controlling. I've listened or
0: yeah, I, I think you've you teed it up very well, John, and I, I've gone through Ken's post. I, I read it a few days ago. There's been a lot of new comments out there. I'm not so worried oh. I'm not so worried about this. I I think cool. this is this is actually it turns out Scrum User Group was a registered trademark back in two thousand nine by the Scrum Alliance this really isn't a, a wholly new thing, uh, and it looks like when you look at Scrum Alliance. So, I let me full disclosure here: I have mm-hmm. almost every Scrum.org certification. I've been. I also have the CSM and the CSPo through the Scrum Alliance. So, I'm invested in both mm-hmm. sides. I think both of them have a great product. I'm not um, necessarily favorable of one over the other. I think they're both different, and and that's great. And so I I, yeah. I have exposure to both. And so now that that's out there, I mean, I will say Scrum Alliance invests quite a bit into the user group community. And so I'm... Oh, that's true. And so there is a lot of investment in there. Now, does that give them the right to to trademark that phrase or term? Well, I don't know, but it's already done. And so I, I agree with, mm-hmm. with, with that said. I am a big fan of Ken Schwaber and what he's done for the Scrum community. And so I, I am... Concerned uh, with what he's brought up, but as you look into it more, I just I don't see the I don't see the the overriding problem, especially since this is already a done deal, and given how Scrum Alliance has already managed their relationship with the Scrum user groups and their investments, I just I don't know the impact. It's now if someone were to reach out and try to trademark the word Scrum, mm-hmm. yeah. That's where I would start. I would donate money to the campaign to stop that. Uh, but as far mm-hmm. as you know, Scrum Alliance trying to put some some kind of governance or framework around how they interact through the Scrum User Group uh, communities, especially with their investments in those communities, I, I'm not going to get excited about it.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and you know uh, when the Scrum users Groups. Um, were proliferating, you know, uh, I was involved with the chartering of one of them, as was Vic, and I didn't find that they were overly controlling or restrictive in any way um, at that point. I guess only theoretically, you know, they, they do have legal footing to exercise control in the future if they should want to, and that's kind of the specter that in some people's minds is looming. But um, on the other side of the coin, as you mentioned, um, I've seen Scrum Alliance be extremely generous with some of the local Agile events, such as um, Southern California Agile Open and uh, the recent uh, Agile Coach Camp U.S. West. And I expect that they will continue along that tradition of, of being generous as a sponsor to... The grassroots uh, agile events that spring up from time to time. So um, I don't I don't feel that they have a, a, a bad track record of wielding the influence that they have through through money. Um, yep. And like you, I, I see Scrum Org and Scrum Alliance. I, I have certifications in both. Like you, Ryan and. I do, I do like there being more than one organization and I do like the differences that are um, endemic to each of those organizations.
1: Hot topic. Well, um, you know, I have Manny Gonzalez's phone number. We can give him a call, but I think it's after hours. He might not pick up. <laughs> so we'll just let that one yeah, go.
2: I th- yeah. yeah, I think Ken actually did write a letter and is waiting for, for Manny to maybe engage in a conversation rather than email. Yeah, And I suspect good things will come of that.
0: Yeah, and that's what I want to sit back and and take a look at too. What does Scrum Alliance come out and say? Uh, what are their intentions? And, and once you have that, compared to with what you know with what Mr. Schwaber's posted, I think we'll have a good picture of what's going on and the and the right next steps forward. At this point, though, I mean I, I'm always interested in what Ken has to say. You know, I think he's. Uh, I, clearly, he's given so much to the community through Scrum, he and Jeff Sutherland, that whenever they, they speak out on something so passionately, it's worth taking notice. I'm glad he did it. I gl- I'm glad he raised awareness. And now it's really in Scrum Alliance's core to just come back and reiterate their commitment to the communities, their commitment to the sponsorships, and and how they're going to continue that down the road.
1: Right. All right. Um, So, again, listeners, what do you have to say? Use the hashtag TellAgileCoffee and chime in. What do you think about the idea of trademarking Scrum user group? Let's move on then to our fourth topic today, which is uh, also, John, this is yours, crossing the line, push and pulling hair. I'm living on the edge.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And so, honestly, I mean, um, levity aside, this is a very delicate thing uh, to do. I've I've seen agile coaches basically cross the line, and it's the last thing that they do at an organization, um, meaning that they're asked not to come back. And so, you know, as I'm as I'm interfacing with teams, and I'm seeing that they are not necessarily adopting practices that you would identify as being. Um, Akin to Scrum or Agile or XP, um, I can see also that there's a breaking point where uh, as a coach, you need to pull back and give them time to absorb the message and what it means to them and the value proposition and to start learning more about a practice before they can actually adopt it. and. Just to give you kind of a sample uh, or an example, um, I, my, my teams know what test-driven development is, and they have certain, you know, definition of done requirements that require, you know, J-unit coverage of, like, let's say 100% of the classes, 95% of the methods, um, 85% of the lines of code, and 80% of the branches so we're perfectly crystal clear on you know, what their definition might be, and then rather than doing test-driven or test-first development, they write their code and play catch-up you know, with the unit tests. And they are very transparent with me when I you know, ask them, well, this could not possibly happen uh, if you're doing test-driven development. You know, would come back to say, we are not doing test-driven development right here. Um, and, you know, um, not, not denigrate it, not uh, discard it, but just simply say, you know, here's where we're at. Um, at that point, because they're honest and forthcoming and, and appreciate the point that I'm making, I, I kind of take that as my cue to say, okay, let them play catch-up because this is the last day of the sprint. There's already enough pressurization in this chamber. Let's, um, let's start afresh tomorrow and, um, you know, in the new sprint, see if there's ways that we can improve. uh, In the retrospective, you know, propose an experiment um, and try to learn. There are other coaches um, that would push further, would demand maybe commitments, or um, start to sermonize. And I think that that can be very dangerous with the team-coach relationship. But in any case, it seems that this is an art rather than a science, and you know I'm as aware of the agile coaching canon as I suppose um, everyone else listening to this um, podcast is you know and I to be honest, I feel like there's a little bit of a dearth of um, knowledge on like where do you draw that line or how frequently should you cross it? Um, it seems like a real gut feel kind of a thing for me, which of course um, might be just one aspect of the profession that I have to learn to live with, because there there is guesswork uh, when you're when you're going on just feelings like that. But I'm I'm interested in how other agile coaches develop that sense of awareness of how and where to draw the line and how frequently to cross it or not. Um, so. If anybody has ideas around that i'd be interested
0: in hearing yeah john i think it's an important topic and it's one that i used to be really and, and, and to an extent i still am really horrible at and I, i've made a lot of mistakes in this area and uh, some of them were very painful mm. you know you can push yeah. way too hard you can really turn off a person who was who was initially open to your ideas and then by pushing right. to the point to where they just say you know what I don't want to engage in this anymore. I'm going to go back to what I was doing. You've destroyed an opportunity there. And that was something that it took a little, a little while for me to, to learn. Uh, because you, you can get so passionate about these ideas. You know, you can, once, mm-hmm. you, once you get it, it's, it's hard to, to take your foot off the gas when you're thinking about agile things. It's also hard to remember that none of us started out as agilists. Hmm. Right. (laughs) right, We all have, most of us have some kind of other background. We spent, we've spent years on this. I've spent 10, 11, 12 years thinking about these topics. I still don't have them figured out, but I, but I trust in them now. And, and now to expect someone who just learned about it yesterday to come around to my way of thinking so quickly is just, it's asinine, but at the same time it happens Hmm. daily. And so something mm-hmm. that actually Zach Boniker, uh forced on me <laughs> almost was a book. He said, Ryan, you've got to read mm-hmm. Crucial Conversations. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh. You've, you've got to devour this book. Stop pushing. Start asking the right questions at the right time to receptive people. Uh, and that's made a lot of difference. I've also been greatly influenced by George Dinwiddie. Uh, he's been on the Agile for Humans podcast a few times and he just, he starts with, he, he always comes back to the, what's the need that you're addressing for the person? And Bob Marshall's really, he's known for that as well. Yeah. You know, meeting the need. And, and so you're no longer pushing. You're just, you're, you're meeting a need of the person and you're, you're acting in that moment. And I, I think it's just a great framework. It's hard. It's not always easy to remember to do that. But I think those two approaches, right? The, so the crucial conversations, if you're an Agile coach, I know it's almost becoming a cliche to recommend that book. It's almost like recommending Drive at an Agile conference. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but crucial conversations, I mean, I, I have it in audible.com format, and I also have the hard copy that is just highlighted and written in. You just have to listen to it mm-hmm. over and over and over, internalize those those lessons, and start conversing in that way. And then you can stop pushing, and you can stop getting fired and asked to leave, and you can just have the right conversation in the right way at the right moment to a receptive person. And I think things go a lot better.
2: Yes, and that phrase, meeting the need, um, that George Dinwiddie and Bar- Marshall reference, I, sounds to me like it's taken from uh, nonviolent communication Um The name of the author escapes me, but I'll I'll find it for uh, the show notes. And um, that's really it, is that um, people's actions and uh, the way that they create story and meaning for themselves is very much um, emergent from the needs that they're trying to have met or needs that are going unmet. And, yeah, I think... um, you know, as I look at, well, you know, why is it then that I go maybe past that or that I'm tempted to go um, past simply meeting the need is uh, I think honestly it's that um, I believe that there is a certain uh, standard of, you know, transformation pace that isn't being met and maybe I'm actually allowing myself to... Um, self-critique and say, okay, so as an agile coach, you're falling down on the job. If you haven't gotten the team from point A to point B by date C, and um, and that's really, I think, overstepping the bounds of the role of a coach. And and so, kind of getting caught up in the heat of the moment um, to say, oh gosh, look how far we've fallen behind. Let's let's push them along faster. Is is where. As a coach, I've lost sight of the job number one, meeting the needs and having the circumstances become one of learning and discovery for the people that do the work, um, rather than me instructing them where to go, what they, what they should know by now. Um, so getting out of the way, getting out of my own way, and especially out of the team's way, um, I, I think is, is probably one of the things that I need to do. But Crucial Conversations, you're right. I I think that that's a good one to go back to.
1: Yeah, very good. Belongs in the canon of books. You should probably put it up on Don Gray's bookshelf, too. Oh, it has a prominent place on that <laughs> shelf. <laughs> All right. Um, the next topic, I'm going to segue into it because I feel like there's uh, enough of an overlap. And it's uh, the topic itself is called Organizational Psychotherapist question mark the new coach and um it was uh it's based on a blog post um that bob marshall had written uh why me where he's not really lamenting uh anything about necessarily himself but rather he's talking about the state of you know what we what we call coaching um in the industry, and and how his bottom line is that he's he's no longer really a coach, but he sees himself his stance as that of more of a therapist, in that a person who helps people deal with uh, these emotional aspects or mental aspects of situations by talking about these aspects and situations. So he says, you know, he doesn't want to be coming off as selling or giving advice or coaching. He just tries to listen and hold the space and empathize, so that. Um, other other people can kind of come up and discover these these solutions themselves, and I wanted to see if any of you guys are familiar with the post, and if not, uh, just what how that resonates with you.
2: Well, uh, this this is Tupolino. Um I'm not familiar with the post, <laughs> but what you said about holding space as a a therapeutic approach uh, is part and parcel um, the role of the new coach or the agile coach, in my opinion. And uh, what I'm referencing, gosh, I'll have to go and find it, but a a colleague uh, where I work posted this thing about, um, I think it was like a kind of a hospice nurse or like a, you know, final stages of life nurse um, holding space for a family that is losing, you know, a loved one.
1: I read that Um, also. Um, I'll try to dig it up and put it in the show notes, but yeah.
2: Oh, that's a, that's a must-read, in my opinion, for anybody that's, um, that's trying to coach or assist a, um, a group through some kind of transformation. And um, it really kind of goes back to Harris Owen's um, two or three books about cultural, cultural transformation, in my opinion, which is that there is certain uh, rites of passage, passage rites, or actual mourning that you go through, you you mourn the loss of the past or the old ways of being, and you celebrate the renewal or opening, you know, of possibilities. And the the coach is the person that kind of holds that space for the for the possibilities and lets the um, the individual or the team or the organization. Find its way through to that space, and um, it's very powerful. I, I I can't claim to fully understand it yet. Um, it's only because I've I've had um, life experiences that resemble the one in that article that I can appreciate the the value of of holding space, um, and it's. Um, I I guess I would say it's a non-invasive approach to assisting that um, is not that predominant in other areas of, of our society. So um, maybe that's why the article is so enlightening to me, but um, you know, I, I I don't, I don't have a couch. I don't have team members come and (laughs) lie down and tell me about their dreams or their life. But um, you know, I When I have one-on-ones with individual scrum masters, oftentimes they do tell me about how they feel like they've found their calling and, you know, post-retirement they, they want to continue this kind of work um, and that the values of servant leadership are things that they have uh, carried with them, you know, throughout their life and that this is something that resonates very strongly with them on a personal level and so to to that degree I guess you could say there is an amount of um, exchange of authentic you know feeling and um, maybe you know philosophical views of of one's place in the world.
0: Yeah I was just gonna say I, I don't always understand where Bob Marshall's going with his posts, but I hope to someday grow up into the kind of person who does. <laughs> does that make sense? <laughs> I, I hope, totally. I, I love reading his stuff. I really uh, try to get my brain wrapped around it. This is one that resonated well. I actually give a talk called Help the Scrum Master is the Impediment. Yeah. It's one that I'm giving up in Canada later this year, and I love this talk because it's my own uh, journey, and I needed a shrink going from a traditional you know pmp type project manager over to a scrum master and it is a gut-wrenching experience you reflect on your past career you realize some of the damage you might have done on other projects and to other people uh, you see how you were not necessarily meeting needs but but doing some other things and this role you know the agile coach as a uh, psychologist is I think very appropriate. You know, if you read the last uh, paragraph of Bob's post, it's, you know, so now I don't tout, sell or give advice. I don't coach. I just try to listen, hold the space, empathize, do what I can to relate to people as fellow human beings and walk together for a while as we pursue our journeys. And it's what we're supposed to be doing, right? It, mm-hmm. Yeah. When we go into an organization, we're just supposed to be the people who hold that space and help people step through the, the different doors as they, they learn more and more about what agility and even take agility out, continuous improvement, what that looks like right. and how to do how to, how to hold retrospectives about their practices, how to be introspective about their own behaviors. And then to be supportive when you have those moments of crisis, right? So you're a a new scrum master and you're having this, you're trying to assign a task because that's what you've done for the last five years. And you have this internal crisis and you need someone to talk to. That's your coach. That's your agile coach. Mm -hmm. That's someone that you can go talk to and say, I have this reflex. I have this, this instinctive thing that I know is wrong and I need to talk to you about it because I feel awful about it. Or, you know, even looking at an agile transformation, we're not putting new practices in. We're changing mindsets. And so you do need the, the shrink in the room to, to, if anything, just to listen. Like, I'm horrified of what this could lead to. I'm, I'm scared of, of what it does to my role in the company. Yeah. You know, as, as, as a project manager, you have a prominent role. You are the throat to choke on a project. You are the person who has all the information. You are needed. You are sought out. Now you're a scrum master. You're a servant. We've, we have flipped your whole world on its ear, and you are now a servant to the developers who are now the prominent people on your project.
1: And that fear, Ryan, isn't just fear from the project, the project manager, but I've, I've heard executives um, state that fear, what's going to happen to our project managers, exactly. <laughs> because they, they recognize mm-hmm. that fear, and they don't see like an easy transition to to the agile way of life for this whole group of middle managers.
0: Yeah, I've had this talk with with quite a few. You know, there's a lot of us who have who have gone into organizations, taken full-time roles, and we spend a lot of our time talking to executives who are terrified of what agile does to the org and what agile will do to their PMO and what agile will do to their current project managers, and there's no 2-day class that prepares you for this, right? The fact that you know, John, our certifications don't address mm. this at all. You know, we we get yeah. through, and Victor, I, I know you're you're also um, yeah, pretty a,
1: deep in the acronyms, yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, we all have alphabet soup, <laughs> alphabet soup after our names, and those. Mm-hmm. And I, I actually i i relayed that experience to to a number of people that I understand the the workings of Scrum at a very deep level, but how to actually comfort someone as they learn that process and what it means to them. I think most of us are novices and it's, it's another area that I think Mm -hmm. Bob Marshall is a pioneer. I appreciate his work and, and I really hope there's a lot more in that area. Tobias Mayer is another person who is a thought leader in what people in the, in focusing on the needs of people and on the, the true human side uh, uh, of what we're doing in, in Scrum and Agile. You know, Even the Agile for Humans podcast is intentionally named that so that we, re- we remember the focus on people. Right? We're not, we're not coaching ones and zeros in software. And we're not coaching a process. Yeah. We are working directly with individuals and those interactions have to be important and they have to be handled with such care and to meet the needs of the people we're interacting with.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Real well put.
2: I, I think that the temptation or the the easiness of becoming distracted from that, or feel that that's something that's unacceptable as part of the job description, is large. And and what I mean by that is, you know, as an embedded team coach with a very large client, um, I give you know a, a one line accounting for what I've done with my day on site, and Specifically, what they're looking for is what agile topics did you teach your team? Um, which you know is if you contrast to everything that you've just said, you know about help holding space for somebody that's going through a very challenging transformation. It's it's not easily cast into those terms, but by the same token. Um, I think our fate as agile coaches on the earlier side of, of um, corporate adoption is one of being misunderstood by probably the sponsors and the people that are engaging you to some degree in the beginning, but that the, the more that you're spending time with the teams, the more that they actually do recognize that's your contribution and sometimes it's simply a way of being like you know bob marshall has described listening as an active um... behavior is itself valuable and necessary for the transformation of mindsets and the growing of identities and so um, it's a privilege and a challenge as a national coach Mm. to not be swept away by the more prevailing currents of corporate culture.
1: I want to just uh, repeat that that I wish that Zach Boniker had made this call. He um, he recommended to to a few of us the uh, reinventing organizations book, the Lulu book, and I'm about a third of the way through it. And it's also got really great things to say about about what it is, what our role is, and they don't even talk about agile necessarily, but just the idea, of the role of that. That coach in the in the very generic sense. What do you have to say? Use the hashtag #TellAgileCoffee and let us know what you think the role of the coach is changing to. Our next topic is agile transformation. The rest of the story.
2: What what I'm feeling with with agile transformations is that um, there's there's been a lot written and um, said about. Uh, scrum teams or XP teams, Kanban teams, and what they need to do to, you know, become more effective and then more efficient, and you know, continuous improvement and all that towards being um, being a better at creating great software. And honestly, when it comes to agile transformations. I don't think that that is more than 50% of the picture, which is to say um, just as uh, optimizing for the whole is absolutely essential and sub-optimization is actually orthogonal uh, to that, we have to look at things like uh, removing structural impediments that the team and the Scrum Master does not have the power or influence or uh, social currency to affect on their own. And, you know, earlier in the podcast, we were talking about this angst that executives or mid- middle-level management has about how their position might be affected by an Agile transformation. And to me, that's very ironic. And what I mean by that is the role uh, or duties of an Agile manager or an Agile executive, as I can point a phrase, is actually heightened by the Agile transformation in that they completely uh, are deterministic in the success or failure of their side of it, which is systematically, transparently eliminating one after another of these structural impediments that are um, that that are brought that are surfaced by introducing the agile principles, values, and practices. So, what I specifically mean by that is in day-to-day terms when you're working with the teams or the programs um, or teams of teams, uh, whatever you want to call it, and they have their retrospectives and they find what they want to change and then they identify the soup, which is uh, Diana Larson's uh, euphemism for structural impediments. You can set that soup aside and say, okay, team, I expect you guys to uh, come out of of this retrospective with an immediately actionable item that you can put into practice on a day-to-day basis that will make your processes better and you'll be a better team for it. However... If you're not accumulating a backlog of the soup or the structural impediments that have been identified, and if you're not actively uh, escalating those to the powers that be, all the way up to the CEO, and if they're not being tracked on some sort of a, um, an aging, you know, uh, board, some sort of visual, big visible display, what's going to happen is that you have like this, you have this. Um, it's almost like uh, like technical debt building up in your team, which is to say, we do not see a cause and effect relationship between our identifying structural impediments and the resolution thereof, therefore we are disempowered, therefore we cannot improve, therefore agile transformation is a farce, therefore we will not be complicit. Therefore, we will not have retrospectives, and let's just stop talking about Agile anyway. So I think that um, having some kind of formal ownership, transparent ownership of these structural impediments, which means rewriting bylaws of the organization, changing large, broad, vastly um, effective or applied um, practices that might be out of date or just might need to be tweaked a little bit is absolutely valuable and essential to the organization. And it may not be apparent to the executives and managers, but they need to know this because it's the rest of the Agile transformation story. And I'm not saying that this is an easy nut to crack. I'm just saying that if you wanna have a lasting transformation, you will have practice because it, it cannot be ignored. You can be delayed, but um, there won't be a transformation without it. You can't just, you can't just like walk around this thing or sweep it under the rug. It's it's part and parcel of Agile transformation. So um, that's what I'm saying as the rest of the story. Um, and I'm, I'm looking for ways to try to engage um, the powers that be in an organization above the teams. And maybe, I don't know whether it's an awareness thing that we can, that we can do, or maybe it's a, a training thing, but um, the, the angst that uh, executives and managers have about them not figuring into the picture is completely misguided and misunderstood. Because if they knew how much uh, is at stake here that they can control collectively, um, I don't think that they would have such um, misgivings or concerns about being displaced with the agile transformation.
0: So John, there's a lot there, and this is one of my favorite topics. I do another talk, I just did this in Vegas a few months back, called uh, Coaching the Pointy-Haired Bosses to be Agile Enablers. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I love this talk because the way that you framed up the 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 problem uh it is a it's a common frame up that i think resonates with a lot of agile coaches and at the same time mm-hmm. it puts the problem on the executive that the executive is the one mm. with the problem which i disagree with i think the mm. agile transformation team is the one that has to own this problem and that, mm. and the reason is okay. that the executive, first of all, if the executive team is not bought into the transformation at, a, at at least a high level, you're already set up for failure and the coach really needs to be uh, sen- sounding off the blow horn saying, no, 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 this, this does not work. I mean, I can come in and teach your team's XP, but that's a software practice. If you want an agile transformation, you know, your C-level executive staff already need to have buy-in uh, to what we're doing. Yep. So I think that's first and foremost. The other part, you know, you're talking about, which I agree with, management shifts to basically a system engineering type role. And that's not a programmer role. That's working on the systems mm-hmm. of work that are, that are in place that, that everyone else is, is impacted by. And so I think that's correct, but not all managers want to be system engineers. So they're very comfortable mm-hmm. in the current structures that they've helped build. You know the current software development life cycle, the current political structure, the current you know circles of influence—all those things—they've spent years and years building up and, and being promoted in and through and around. That's comfortable, and so they do have mm-hmm. all of these structures that we're now saying, "Look, we're going to take all that away." Now, these are bright people, these are smart people, mm-hmm. and they 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 see the writing on the wall that the game's about to change and there's a lot of issue there as well and so what i have found is let's just make the work visible and this is why i'm am mm-hmm. a fan of scrum right scrum mm-hmm. for all its flaws right let's push that aside mm-hmm. it's excellent mm-hmm. at pointing out problems in your organization it's excellent yes and so when those when those are pointed out those have to be owned And I I agree with you there. It's the ultimate system engineering tool. Make it visible. Show them the pain. Even more so, show them the cost. Explain that the the cost of this status report was X number of story points, which costed the whole organization, which costed, which cost the organization this feature in this sprint, which delayed revenue two to four weeks out. That's a real conversation with that level. Instead of you're so unagile, this is this is not an agile practice. I don't know why we have to do this. This is not you know those kind of conversations. That works when we're talking oh, just- when we're talking to each other. Fine. It's like yeah, you're right. That's so not agile, man. But when you're talking to sure. decision makers, you have to show them why it hurts. And that's you know yeah. As I progress in my career, I think Victor, as you progress in yours, and John, I think we're all we're all people with mobility you know and and so we we've moved into different roles and, and right now mine's management the thing that gets my attention most is the pain this particular thing is stopping my team from delivering on a a software project well i need to get on the phone and take care of that uh, because that's going to have a definite cost or a project overrun or a missed date or a a missed commitment or whatever it is that that is going to be impacted. And the same goes for these executives who are trying to work with during transformations. Let's treat them with respect. Let's frame the problem as our own. And then let's figure out a way to speak to them in such a manner that, first of all, the work is visible. The system uh, is understood. The problem within the system is, uh, is visible. And the impact is quantified in such a way that it has meaning and cannot be ignored
2: Yes, yeah, so I, th- I think that's the best approach, and as uh, either, you know, a, a scrum master or release train engineer or program manager, um, bring, you know, surfaces the problem and says, okay, this is what I want you to take away, there's always got to be a value proposition there, which is, if you, right. if you remove this impediment, then you will have a value stream of this size, starting whatever it is you get around to removing the impediment, and... Maybe, you know, as we talk about, you know, system engineering for managers, um, there might be a way that you could gamify the removal of structural impediments much in the way that Scrum has gamified the servicing of impediments and delivery of incremental, um, you know, iterative incremental uh, software. And and so what I'm saying is, you know, um, what motivates many executives um, to take decisive action, which actually requires the changing of long-cherished policies, etc, usually has to do with recognition or prominence or uh, a growth in social currency, you know, in that political um, setting. And so, you know, if... If it became very transparent, specifically which executives or managers were successful in resolving specific uh, impediments and what the value was to that, now all of a sudden that becomes part of their permanent track record with the enterprise and there can be a very transparent comparison to... Who is solving the larger problems more frequently, and you know what what that meant to the team um, that was impacted by it the most, or, or what have you, and giving giving rewards uh, on top of that, you know, um, that may or may not have a huge financial cost to the organization. So, anyways, um, giving incentives where they're actually sought for, um, which might be different to an executive compared to, say, a team member, um, I I think could get more traction rather than getting up in our heads and saying, yeah, you know, they should do this and let the numbers speak for themselves. Um, I'm a little bit skeptical that um, that that has pronounced results because I think that that's what we've been saying we're going to do In Scrum, you know, I've I've been reading about this uh, another in another book by Ken Schwaber, where you know we say, yeah, that's what they do. You know, Scrum has two purposes. You know, surfaces these problems, and and what the what the enterprise decides to do about it is their business, and um, it's up to up to the CEO as the product owner of the entire organization to expect progress on this. Well how much of a mechanism is in place to actually incentivize people to take risks by publicly taking on um, some, some policy or, or some long-standing practice. I would guess that it's not enough because I don't see a lot of organizations just going gangbusters on long lists of structural impediments. But it could be out there. I'd love to hear from a listener that says, oh, no, we've been doing that for decades. <laughs> but I, I, I think that that's what, it, you know, when we look at the benefits of Scrum or Agile, I think that that's what, that's what lies directly in front of them, is that, yeah, the team transforms, the team ad, uh, adopts these practices that surface the issues, but where they go from there is the real killer question.
0: Well, and it's back to a lot of the conversation we've had tonight, is that we've got to give them the same respect, time, and space. To, to get to that same conclusion that, that's so natural to people like us who have been looking at this for the last 10 years. Yes,
1: that's true. Tell Agile Coffee, let us know how, if and how, you've gone ahead and uh, tracked these structural impediments or gotten, uh, gotten buy-in to address them along the way. Um, John had mentioned gamification a couple of minutes back, which brings us to our final topic of the night, which is that of Agile Games. And when I say Agile Games, I don't just mean games, but also I guess you could call them to be pedantic uh, simulations or learning activities as well. And I think this is this is more of a fun topic. It's not as heavy, I think, as some of the other topics we've had. But it's just, a, in my opinion, kind of a listing of some of the games that I use, that we've used uh, with our teams, whether it's in, in an early portion of a transformation or uh, kind of as a refresher, maybe along the way, that go ahead and reinforce some of the lean or agile values, the benefits of working in this way. And so I I threw this topic out there because I'm talking with someone um, in the next couple of days, who's got to go and conduct a training. And he asked me to kind of give him some guidance on what games he might want to use. So I've come up with about you know, four or five games that I use pretty often. And I wanted to hear um, you know, you guys' feedback on if there's any other games. So I'm just going to spend a minute or two just kind of overviewing um, the games that I, I'm going to share with him. First of all, is this game called Multitasking. And I'm not sure if it, if these games have other names, but this is what I'm calling them. So, um, <clears throat> Multitasking basically, you know, shows how multitasking reduces effectiveness. So each player can play by themselves as, you know, at, at their desk with a with a piece of paper. And they in this case, they take a piece of paper. They form three columns. And they um, in the first column, they write uh, the first ten letters of the alphabet, A through J. Um, and then the second column, they write 1 through 10, the regular Arabic numerals. And then uh, finally, the Roman numerals, 1 through 10, in the third column. But they write them, as you're probably familiar, in... in um, across rows. So they would write A and then the number one and then the Roman numeral one and then go back to B, the number two, the Roman numeral two, all the way down. That's the first iteration. They time themselves. And the second iteration is basically the same thing, only instead of switching between forms, they would write A through J and then one through 10, as we're familiar with them, and then one through 10 in Roman numerals. So you can see how quickly you can get done, uh, get done faster in, in the second way. Of doing it so that's that's the first game next is collaborative origami so you give you divide the group up into kind of um, three teams of two but you have three different groups of them the first group is face to face working I'm sorry, the first group is working side by side uh, so that one person is the folder and the other person gives them the directions of how to do the origami, and they can, they can, the folder can see the directions. The second one, they're face to face. The folder can't see the directions, but the, the person guiding them can tell them. Uh, what they need to do. And the third one is back to back. So it illustrates the importance of kind of face to face versus distributed communication. And then uh, the penny flip game, which I'm not going to describe, but that emphasizes value, the value of small batches and process improvements. Uh, the ballpoint game, I think we're also all familiar with, which teaches uh, teamwork, also process improvements. And that's with a big, big group. Um, and then something called the human knot, which I wasn't familiar with up until uh about a year six or eight months ago um which is again a large group of people kind of standing together in a room it has to be uh i believe it's an even number of people and it teaches uh self organization um so those are those are five games are you guys familiar with each of those games that i mentioned and um what comments do you have about those games or do you have any other games that you like
2: um I, I'm familiar with with the games that you've mentioned, and a lot of them, or some of them, anyways, are built into the um, the agile training uh, that I've either received or that my current employer offers. Um, and I guess you know the the ideas that I have around their value um, are that they're much more instructive on a deeper level than most people probably realize. And what I mean by that is that I've heard people say, oh, well, games are just something that you put into your curriculum for when people come back from lunch and are about to go into sugar coma. You get them to stand up. They get 18% more oxygen to their brain, and then they learn something while having fun and sit down. I think that there's a lot more to it than that, Um, much in the way people point out that Jesus taught in parables because of the multiple applicability and the timelessness and the integration of symbols uh, into stories and the way that our brains process information through stories. Um, The game is a way of creating a metaphor for learning that will help people understand how to work together on several levels at the same time. I think that um, some, some games are more valuable than others, um, and that when you're really skilled at using Agile games is when you can identify the, the, the most painful point of lack of understanding that a group has and introduce a game that reduces this point to very understandable terms that you learn through doing rather than hearing or saying, and um, and can implement that. And I've seen agile coaches that can make up games on the fly, agile games. Just um, they just it comes to their mind and they they introduce it to a group and it becomes like a new practice um, and. There's a huge you know, directory of, of Agile games out there nowadays, um, several of them, I guess. Um, right. So, you know, if, if those games hap- happen to be applicable to the group that, um, you know, this friend of yours is working with, then great. But I would say knowing where to go uh, to find games that are, that are relevant to your group is, is probably the best thing to have in mind. And, and maybe yeah, I've, again. I've shared
1: the resource. I've shared the resource. Um, you know, Tasty Cupcakes is one website that just about everyone knows. Um, I've got these games on my own website, agilecoffee.com slash games. You can find out more there. But, but John, you and I had talked in previous episodes or maybe offline mm-hmm. in both cases about the use of improvisation. And I think uh, the more that you use these games and the more familiar you are with improvisation as well, the more likely you are to do just as you said, kind of pull out the right, the right game at the right time. Mm -hmm. And you're not playing games for game's sake. You don't want any, certainly the last thing you want is to tell everyone, hey, we're going to play games today and and have the executive team come in and Mm -hmm. say, oh, they're just playing games. That's all they're doing. But, but rather you're using the game as a learning opportunity, as you're saying, and you're you're using kind of the game as an excuse to, to teach about, to do that unpacking of, okay, what are the lessons that we learned from that game and how do they apply to our real life, our working lives?
2: Yeah, and I think, you know, um, much in the way that, uh, so uh, war games um, are ways of practicing military activity without suffering casualties, Um, You could say that agile games are ways of practicing good software development practices without casualties because it's just a game. It's not you targeting somebody's position or making um, comments about the relative value of one position's contribution to the team. And So kind of blurring the context a little bit and taking individuals out of it is one of the advantages of games. It it lets you um, diffuse some of the political tension that normally encapsulates some of the the learnings that we're trying to bring to people's awareness. And so, um, you know, that's an area that, like, for those, you know, of you that are creating games out there, agile games out there, might want to focus your efforts, I would say, you know, look for the political tension in, in a team and and find a game, uh, a way of making a game that uh, uses a metaphor that brings them out of their context enough so that they're not thinking of themselves or a specific individual and that we can just focus on what's, what is so rather than... What somebody did or who should or shouldn't be a member of the team, et cetera, um, because it's the truth that helps us progress and be, become better teams. Um, it's not criticizing or placing blame that makes us a better team. Games will help.
0: I think getting back to a, a regular theme of, of our conversation tonight is are we meeting a need and and the yeah. game and the game should meet the need of the team at the moment that that need is recognized. And so, like you guys are saying, the gameplay for the sake of gameplay isn't necessarily good, but the need uh, being met certainly is. I, th- I like the penny game that, that Victor brought up. And actually, a friend of mine, uh, she used that game modified slightly because people in her organization did not understand the role of the product owner. They, they thought it was business as usual. Uh, you know, here's the requirements. Go do it. And they, they modified the game a bit. They added in nickels, dimes, and quarters uh, to add a new dimension, right? So the fir- yeah. on the first yeah. iteration, the first sprint, whatever you want to call it, you know, let's be, let's not, not a, a semantical issue, but let's say on the first sprint, this, uh, the person running the game basically said, oh, I only want results with heads up. And everyone's like, all right, scratching their heads a bit. The next iteration, she only accepted, um, shiny coins. So everyone assumed it was uh, dimes, nickels, and quarters, but the dimes were excluded because they were too small. You know, All these different things um, just showing what, what a product owner could do and finally got the team working with that product owner uh, when she finally made a, an outrageous request, the team finally responded, that's a great request, throw it on the backlog, we're busy working on this iteration. And when that <laughs> aha moment Oops. hit they just stopped the game. They said, all right, this interaction is something we want to pull out and work on and discuss. And and that's where I see the gamification really being valuable. Is And if you don't know the penny game, I'm sorry that won't make sense to you, but it, it's worth learning, uh, just not necessarily for what I just said, but just as a, a learning tool for your teams. But uh, that moment was then uh, pulled out of that context, used as a, a whole team learning moment, you know, the learning amplified and, and everyone just understood that the PO is is now embedded in this team. It's a back and forth. It's not a here's my requirements, go build it, that there's a true collaboration. And that moment solidified that lesson for the people impacted. It was a really powerful moment and for me changed my opinion on the role of games in the work that we do, because I wasn't always a fan at uh, Shamed to admit it, but it just hadn't always clicked. But once I saw that moment, uh, or heard about that moment happening, it, it just solidified it for me that this is an important part of the work that we do.
1: I think um, I think John's familiar as well with uh, Brian Beecham's uh, Lego uh, TDD game, and that that's something that I learned. Uh, I saw him perform early early on when he was developing it, but but again, it's a way to teach test driven development in this case for to rather a, a group of people who aren't necessarily developers and just show them the the rationale, like why, why can't Beck and, and these people who are busy developing these, these new ways of work, you know, why, why testing in this, why developing in this way is so critical for us. Um, and it was a game and and so it got people engaged and they played it and they laughed about it and stuff but then you could see why why developers it makes more sense for developers to use TDD in this case and again it's it's a way of getting you out of your normal rational space of thinking of things and learning things a different way so that the subconscious can consume it and and um, and internalize it fun stuff
2: That's a good point, uh, Vic, about how games, um, because they're a metaphor for something that's more technologically sophisticated, that it makes the principles of Agile, or at least the practices, accessible to people who don't necessarily make software, but maybe make very important decisions about the financing of software development. And then, um, finally, I just had a, a recommendation to make, and that is that in the situation where maybe the participants of your game are not inferring the lessons that you intended for it, um, you know, mid-game, um, you know, like the, the penny game that, that Ryan mentioned, because uh, I would agree, once once they've gotten the learning, you can stop and go on with, you know, making software right. or training, but um, if they're not getting it, I've seen how, after the game, having a fishbowl exercise to retrospect on mm. the game just uh, pulls all of these, these um, learnings out of it and makes it plain for everybody. And as a coach or a trainer, it's so much more valuable to have them say it than for you to say it. If they discover right. it and infer it from the game, then it's theirs forever and yeah. that's true for them you know on and on whereas if you say it well then that's just something that you thought you know might be relevant to them or not and the likelihood that you know their own effective filter you know, their internal voice will just say so what or maybe yes maybe no um, so allowing them to, to find the learning is is important and valuable and actually easy to do with a follow on retrospective like the fishbowl.
1: Well, guys, I think that brings us to the end of this topic. And, uh, we've gone through a number of topics and, um, for the regular listeners of the agile coffee podcast, uh, if you're still with us, kudos, because this is, uh, probably our longest episode. And, um, for those of Ryan's listeners to the Agile for Humans podcast, thanks for thanks for tuning in tonight and getting a sense of what it is that we do when we talk on the Agile Coffee podcast. Um, John Jorgensen has been, and I just want to take a moment to kind of call out John because he, um, he's been coming to our face-to-face meetups. When I started doing the lean coffees back in 2012, I think John might have come in uh, that year, if not certainly early in 2013. And John was really instrumental in getting the podcast itself off the ground. So, listeners, if, if you're not familiar with the Agile Coffee podcast, um, first of all, I thank you for listening thank to this you. one today. And I invite you to come back and, and check out some of the previous ones because John is uh, John's one of my favorite guests. And um, tonight was definitely no exception. Um, I want to thank Ryan also for uh, getting us together. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah,
0: thank you, Victor. It's been a lot of fun. I. We've talked a little bit before this show that usually I'm I'm doing your role that you filled tonight. I'm facilitating. I'm trying to keep the questions flowing and, and keeping the conversation going. And tonight it was just a it was a real pleasure to be able to sit back, just add to the conversation, you know, weave in and out of the, of the topics with you and John, and really enjoyed it. And uh, would love to do it again. Uh, to my to the listeners of Agile for Humans, please check out Victor's uh, podcast, the Agile Coffee Podcast. Uh, a lot of great content in there. Zach Boniker, who's a, becoming a fixture on Agile for Humans, participates quite a bit. Uh, John is also there. Uh, a lot of good content, a lot of different topics, very diverse, a so wide range of topics and, and participants, and always keeps it fresh and interesting. And just thank you if you've made it this far. This was a long one for us, too. But I, I hope at least a few of these topics have provided some some great value for you. John, any final words?
2: I'm just looking forward to the next Agile Coffee, quite frankly. <laughs> um, it's, <laughs> it's it's been it's been a long uh, diversion, um, as you know. Some of the um, involvement that I've had with some local charities when I am in town, um, but uh, I, I realize you know things in the Agile community have have progressed, and um, there's just so many more ideas out there to get exposure to. As, as one listener, um, I'm really looking forward to the future episodes of both podcasts and um, would love to participate just you know, even on the offline meetings um, one lucky Saturday. So thank you for having me, both uh, Ryan and Victor.
1: So John Jorgensen can be reached on Twitter at Water Scrum Bon. Ryan Ripley is on Twitter at Ryan Ripley. That's R-I-P-L-E-Y is the spelling of his last name. My name is Victor Bonacci. I can be reached on Twitter at Agile Coffee.
0: Great time. Really loved being on here. Uh, glad that both of our, our audiences get to to know the other shows and, you know, just love promoting the agile podcasting community and, and hopefully everyone's enjoyed this and they, they check out our, our archives and and we continue to bring value to the people that, that, that trust us with their time and, and humble us with their feedback and emails and, and all of their, their great notes. So thanks again.